Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back. This would be COVID-12, which means this is the 12th COVID special edition. Echo summary. That is correct. Something like that. I mean, if you think about it, this whole disease of COVID since, you know, December 8th is 156 days old. So we're averaging like one every 10 days and we didn't even start until six weeks ago. We are the experts. No, <laughs> there's no such thing as a COVID-19 expert Correct. in 156 days. So today was started out uh, by Jerrica Berg, a professor and vice chair of research at the U of M. And uh, just so you know, you can go to their website if you uh, if you need uh, some of that information. Katie Stangle at catholichealth.net can get you all of that. Um, but they are doing a lot of different types of research projects on COVID-19. Today she highlighted one on uh, um, different uh, at-risk groups. Yeah, Somali, Hmong, Spanish, um, just really focusing on, again, these disparate groups. Yep. So, so so if you have an interest in getting involved in some of these types of things, uh, we are happy to get you that information. Now you want me to try to tackle this name. So Dr. Amy Schneewey. Yeah, she told us how to say it, but no, she said no one can say it. Nobody. So Dr. Amy. S-Z-N-E-W-A-J-S. If you can say it, please email it to us. Correct. Please, of yourself actually speaking it. Yes. Anyway, so she is the medical director at the Department of Pediatric Hospital Medicine at Children's. She really kind of hails from everywhere, and we got to revisit her training area in San Francisco today on our green screen. It was quite a lovely sunset. She also grew up a bit in Michigan. There you go. Anyway, so really, she quickly actually went through some of the most up-to-date epidemiology for today. Um, So as of today, May 12th, Minnesota has currently 12,494 cases of covid 1,436 of them are in healthcare workers and 614 deaths. There are more than, oh, wait, not 496 people are currently hospitalized with 199 in the ICU in Minnesota right now, but apparently that is still underwhelming. Yep, I'm underwhelmed. Underwhelmed, I guess we still have access, which is good. So in March and April, uh, Children's is basically only testing their hospitalized patients. So uh, really, they didn't have a lot of positives in children at that point. Uh, And now, obviously, some of those resources have uh, been available, and they've really started testing more uh, asymptomatic patients that are outpatients, such as uh, children who've had, you know, aerosolizing procedures and uh, surgical, surgical patients. So a lot more of that. So, Yeah, and as of... The 7 a.m. on May 10th, which is when their, da- their data at Children's Hospital itself, they have had a total of 35 positive cases, 43% of them testing positive out of the ER, 40% out of clinic ambulatory settings, and only 17% out of inpatient. I'm just going to show kind of what we've all, I mean, really, this data kind of fits with the severe, even in adults, you know, 
only about what 20% less than 20% are severe and needing admission and that kids kind of fit that even though kids don't necessarily get as sick interestingly yeah. enough yeah interestingly they had uh, five cases in under a year but the biggest group is really that 11 to 17 year age group where their 12% of their cases were there Mm-hmm. And ninety four percent of them are they what they are considering mild or moderate, and so some of these hospitalized are probably more related to um, just other surgeries or other things that they had tested them for and found it. Um, they have had some very interesting atypical presentations in COVID in kids, um, which is really why we wanted to highlight this. Just a lot of things in the news coming out with the different types of things kids are showing, but kids in non-severe cases are showing with very bizarre um, kind of non-respiratory things at all. You wonder if some of these things aren't just somebody has this problem and then they test them for some other reason and it's positive, but I, I just have a hard time believing testicular torsion, ouch, uh, would be a, would be a atypical Although, presentation. If you remember back... Remember, the testicles have a high, you know, level of ACE2 receptors. Yes, that's correct. And so maybe there's some inflammation and causes the torsion. I don't know. I'm getting a little sick to my stomach. Let's every, move on. Every male listening right now is all choking in the bathroom. But, but rhinorrhea, though, I think is the other one where typically COVID-19 wasn't associated with that runny nose. But they've seen that a lot as kind of an atypical presentation in children. Yeah. And they get away from testicular torsion. <laughs> He's still sick right now, guys. So another atypical severe case that she discussed was um, how a patient who had kind of just not been feeling the greatest for a while, but then, you know, was fine, kind of better and told mom he needed a Tums and collapsed and had an acute MI. Um, PCR was negative, uh, which they've kind of seen a lot of in kids, and we'll get to that, but antibodies are still pending but some of these weird, bizarre presentations in kids, they've actually gone back and look at some different cases over the last few months at the hospital to say, wow, maybe these did have some association with COVID when they weren't just easily testing everybody. Yeah, I think we're going to find that that delay. I mean, even in our town where we're just finally seeing the positives, you know, it's going to be a while till we see these unusual things in kids because uh, they're not getting it till later. So Skin. Skin. Some of these skin manifestations have uh, presented uh, very unusually, uh, these diffuse rashes, this kind of acro ischemia, I love saying that, and otherwise kind of asymptomatic uh, uh, children. And it's that whole, you know, COVID toe thing. So weird. Just just very bizarre. I'm checking my feet every night now. <laughs> like every good diabetic. So really what they're noticing is the feet, sometimes the hands, on average, it hits three digits at a time, um, but then they can be separated by unaffected toes and fingers. So just kind of random toes can be on the uh, plantar or the dorsal side. Um, kind of this blistering slash erythematous, violaceous, somewhat of a blistering look um, on the toes. Yeah. Lucky people didn't jump to like uh, amputation because they heal. They do. So, yeah. Well, and ironically, it's like usually these kids that aren't sick at all, like with what you would think, like the respiratory symptoms of COVID, they're pretty much asymptomatic kids. They get better. Yeah. And actually there's in one study about 20% of the, the pediatric patients, or is it all patients, I believe, presented with some skin manifestation. Mm-hmm. So, again, 
look for it. Uh, I would have to say in the people that I've seen with COVID or that have positive cases, they've not reported rash. Have you asked about their toes? I did not specifically ask about toes, but that's on my list now. It's just one of those things, like you ask everybody now your sense of smell. And so it's just one of those. People are very sensitive about what their feet look like, though. (laughs) You see telemed holding up your your toes. It's like, wow, that one toe is really long. (laughs) (laughs) So different ways, um, different rashes, erythematous rash, widespread urticarial, varicella form exanthem. We are going to have a dermatologist on in the next couple of weeks. And I like what you said last week, that it'd be easier to learn what it doesn't present like than what it can present like. Yeah, there's a gazillion different dermatologic looks. One small association or at least a relationship, not necessarily a correlation potentially with coagulation. Uh, so kind of like everything COVID, there's always this increased clotting and all of that. And so is there some association with that in this COVID toe, especially in these, um, you know, distal extremities? But again, they, they're self kind of healing, so... It can't be that, I don't know, gangrene. Can I tell a joke? Yes, yeah, sure. I just, I got something from one of my friends today and everybody's worried because they can't travel with COVID. And I got a picture of a uh, a suitcase with a, with not a smiley face, but a sad face on it. And it, it said, uh, there's nothing worse than emotional baggage. I'm not sure if you get that. But. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Sadly. Okay. So now the bigger, scarier things that we've all been seeing on the news with kids is this Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki-like disease um, associated with COVID in kids. And it really started with this one case report out of a Northern California academic hospital where there was a severely sick six-month-old who was a term infant, healthy baby, um, but now six-month-old with five days of fever classic criteria for Kawasaki disease without any respiratory symptoms. And that is pretty strange. Uh, first reported case. And it was actually because it was, it was interesting because it, uh, um, you know, they had some conjunctivitis. So they had very prominent uh, tongue papillae. Uh, just an unusual blanching polymorphous maculopapillar ash. You are not a dermatologist. Yes. And then this weird swelling of the hands and the lower extremities. So, um, again, very odd case, and, and since this first case report, there have been others. Yeah, but they did, you know, met the criteria for Kawasaki, and they got the COVID because everybody's getting a COVID now, and in California, they're a little bit ahead on getting COVID on everybody, and the, the PCR was positive. Uh, the labs did show left-shifted um, elevated white count, which is a little bit different, you know, but they didn't specifically comment on the lymphopenia. Just anemia, normal platelets, a very elevated CRP at 13.3, low albumin, elevated sed rate. Um, but the good news is, is the echo and all the heart stuff was fine. But again, this whole course had very boring respiratory symptoms. Yeah, very, very mild stuff. And the child was actually treated with uh, IVIG and had a resolution of the fever and was actually discharged to home. I think that's the phone. I We're think gonna, it's the phone. Is that, you know, it's not my phone. Somebody famous yeah. calling me? <laughs> Probably not. We're going to let that play. So, you know, and we'll get to some of these treatments coming up, but the one thing, you know, she did point out is how we're kind of switching in the treatment realm um, from really looking at these uh, 
viral modifiers like the remdesivirs into more of the inflammatory modulators like the IVIG treatments because especially in kids, you're not necessarily seeing this acute respiratory distress syndrome and this respiratory compromise type um, thing. You're seeing this delayed kind of multi-system organ inflammatory response. So the IVIGs are kind of tending to be more of the treatments. Uh, and obviously, uh, there's going to need to be more data to determine, you know, whether or not this is really a complete association between COVID-19 and the Kawasaki disease. But obviously, there's something going on. There's been many more cases. Obviously, New York, everybody sees that in the news. Yeah, and so kind of like what I was just alluding to, you know, this initial PCR might be positive or negative, but to really look at all those inflammatory markers, the CRP, the ceterite, ferritin, troponin, BNP, D-dimer, LDH, all the things we're kind of looking for even in adult COVID patients, but really looking for those in kids because it often presents two to four weeks post that initial infection. So the viral load has kind of started to trend down and you might get a lot of negative PCRs even though the antibodies, which take a while, could potentially be positive, but it's this post-viral inflammation thing um, with all these variety of symptoms. I think it's easy to miss too, you know, by the way, we're having all these background noises that, that people are hearing. I sorry about that. It's and we're in a vault, but yet occasionally the phone rings. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're in a sealed vault. But but I think the the thing that I always remember, I think often when we see kids like this, and they, some of these kids have had such mild symptoms that you might not even ask or even think uh, COVID nineteen because they may have had just a runny nose. They may have just had something simple, and suddenly they end up with this bizarre inflammatory thing. So at least for a while. Anybody having any problem whatsoever? COVID nineteen. Yeah. COVID. Um, there was just a lot of things that with different treatments, um, which I'm not even going to get into. But um, they she did talk about referring to rheumatology, infectious disease, critical care, IVIG, blah 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 blah. Um, but ultimately, if you are in Greater Minnesota and you need help or assistance on the, the children's website, childrensmn.org, there is a clinician toolkit specifically for COVID. Or you can always call the physician access line, um, which every hospital should have access to. I probably shouldn't give it out on a public co- um, yeah, podcast. Um, but they also do some briefings of updated um, studies, kind of like the University of Washington site does. few questions were asked of her, though. I want to make sure we point out whether they're testing all the family members as well. And I think kind of like anything else, the answer is oh, it's case by case. Depends. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, on pediatric oncology, again, these are going to be higher risk kiddos. And so you're going to obviously do a little bit more quarantining of kiddos that are more sick or potentially can get more sick or more immunocompromised. Uh, and again, this whole case by case thing. Not doing a ton of labs, though. I was a little bit surprised by that, that even if they present to the ER and they don't need to be admitted, they're really just ordering a COVID. They're not doing the CBC and the CRP in kids necessarily unless they're admitting them. Yeah, I think, I think that's just because they don't like to put needles in kids. Oh, that's probably it. But if it, you know, the reality is if it's not going to change what you do, I guess. We did have one question about uh, diabetics. We did. You don't, maybe don't remember, but... Um, you know, have some younger patients with type one diabetes. Are how how carefully are we supposed to watch these? And and the answer was really we don't know. Um, are these patients that are going to do worse? I mean, we know that um, the older diabetics don't do so well, and a lot of the kidney issues arise. But the younger people don't have some of those things. 
what she did hint at is that they seem to have lately a lot more new uh, onset diabetics. Yeah, they said they were going to start looking back through. All of a sudden, they've had all these diabetic admissions in these kids to see is there some association. Yeah, viral induction there. But here's my brilliant statement. Oh, gosh. (laughs) This is how you can be an expert in 156 days because your answer is, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) That was good, wasn't it? (laughs) No, it wasn't. So then Chris Hagen came on, and uh, he's our Centric Care Farm D who gives a once-weekly update. And uh, gosh, he had a lot to say today. We almost had to just uh, close him down, give him the hook. That's kind of funny. (laughs) But uh, so he talked a little bit about remdesivir. Again, remdesivir, tons of studies going still. The reality is everything that I've read still says that they might get out of the hospital more quickly, but uh, they don't live any longer. Uh, the but severe it's been ones, approved but for it has emergency been approved. So, so far, I don't think any of the studies have been fabulous. So I wouldn't start just guzzling that down. Yeah. Hydroxychloroquine. Yep, it's I on. really liked when you said, why do they keep trying? Yeah. I mean, what's the definition of insanity when you keep doing the same thing and expecting a it's different like, result? It's like study after study. Nope, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, you know, tocolizumab, IL-6 inhibitor, um, a little bit more dramatic decline in inflammatory markers, some radiological improvement, reduced vent support. But again, you know, does that really mean that you're going to live longer? Not necessarily. Yeah, and there's some out-of-the-U.S. type meds that have shown some improvement in CT results. But again, there's nothing that has really been given to people. It's like, yep, they live much better. They get off the vent quicker. Doesn't really happen. So some of the other medication updates, things he talked about before, the corticosteroids still, you know, kind of a flip of a coin, uh, maybe low dose in some of the ARDS, but uh, probably nothing big. Uh, vitamin D. Again, don't go out and high dose yourself on vitamin D, not really showing all that much benefit. Yeah, well, there's most of the studies done on that right now are these large population studies. And it's just kind of like, a, well, these people tend to have lower vitamin Ds in general in this country. So, so they have hyperactive immune systems and they yeah. might get more sick, but. Yeah, who knows? Um, so really no recommendations on vitamin D. That whole ACE ARB thing is just keeps getting more interesting. You know, that whole, now the ACE may be associated with a little statistical significant improvement, uh, but not, not huge. Not enough that they're telling us to move all of our hypertensive patients to an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, but the ARBs. They are a little better. But still oh, no, not I enough. Got, no, I have that backwards. Yeah. Ooh. Either way, they're both a hair better. They're both showing promise, but, but still not enough to say this is a treatment. But the cheapo lisinopril apparently is the best. So uh, cross out what I said at the start. We don't edit, so <laughs> it's going to be in there for eternity. Right. Back to the anticoagulants. The bottom line is COVID patients clot more than they bleed. Um, they obviously have this prothrombotic DIC, the disseminated intravascular coagulation, more thromboembolism, uh, elevated D-dimer. So it's probably not a bad idea to make sure your patients are adequately anticoagulated, whether that's the typical low molecular weight heparin, even just the baby aspirin, but really just follow the typical DVT prophylactic guidelines. And these patients are all vented in an ICU. They're all on yeah. You know, anticoagulation. And then really I'm going to skip down a little, Heather, to llama antibodies because, yes. frankly, 
uh, I think the llama market's going to go crazy. There's uh, some antibodies. They have big antibodies and they have small antibodies. And apparently these small ones fit in between those cool spikes in the in the uh, COVID little virus and it prevents cell penetration. So uh, stay tuned. We're probably going to be raising llama in every yard so that we can save our lives from COVID. In their red pajamas? Yes. I've not seen that book. No, llama, llama, red pajama. Nope. He really misses his mama. <laughs> Haven't read the book. Jeez. And lastly. Poor grandkids you have. Lastly, Dr. Pandemic himself, Dr. John Hick. Um, a lot of, again, this monitoring of the long-term care facilities, really trying to get these organizational plans in place. But he kind of almost yelled it out. If a healthcare worker in a long-term care facility has any symptoms, they really should not be working at all, even with appropriate PPE, until proven otherwise. Right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Agor, of course, uh, really, uh, he kind of talked a little bit about how Minnesota's really in pretty good shape. And although I think all of us expect that as we open up some of the surgeries and some of the businesses you know, our we may f- have a flattened curve a little bit, or it may get flat at some point, but it probably is going to stay up for a while. Um, but overall, I think uh, he felt think- that we were in pretty good shape. Uh, we're having increasing uh, improvement in the testing supplies and the swabs and the PPEs. So not like we could, you know, take a bath in PPEs, but, w- but we're getting more. <laughs> and... He is not the governor, nor does he have a special crystal ball. So we do not know if the emergency order expires tomorrow. We do not know if anything's going to open up next week. Well, maybe at our next podcast, we'll get the governor on. Yeah, let's we'll just, do that. I have his phone number here. Okay. Well, my phone. we'll go for that. While you're looking for that in your ancient flip phone here, we'll let um, Battle Lake start warming up. All right. And so what do we have coming up? Wednesday. Thursday. Thursday, we have... Um, I don't even know. Oh, outpatient management of COVID, kind of what Maura's doing and how they've been managing. Been able to really, they have this cool model where they're able to go out in different homes and how they're able to really keep patients not in the hospital and this whole system they've put together in their small community to take care of patients so they don't overwhelm their hospital. Shame on them for thinking forward. I know. Gosh, great idea. Too many people want to stay in the box, Heather. Get out of the box. Think for yourself. I think this is going to be really cool. So, yeah, we'll see you Thursday. Um, on the regular release of our podcast today was the alcohol kinetics and tolerance stuff. That's correct. And tomorrow's Echo at... Uh, the Sanjeev Aurora. Yes, the inventor of the Echo. The inventor of the Echo. So if anybody needs any more information, you can always contact us on our Twitter at Echo, C-S-C-T, or email us at Minnesota Opioid Echo at catholichealth.net. Great. Thanks, and thanks to the band. Keep your eyes well peeled today. The excise man is on his way. Searching for the mountain tay in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the oats and can. The mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Like the double from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising Barney. Swing to the left, swing to the right, the excise man will dance all night. Drinking up the tea in the broad daylight in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots of the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising Barney. A gallon for the butcher, a quart for Tom, a bottle for old 
Father John to help the poor old man along in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising Barney. Men are at the wall Jesus Christ, they're drinking it all In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Run like the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising Barney